At Centric Learning, we believe every student deserves a high-quality education. This is Beyond the Classroom, a podcast where we share our passion for education and celebrate the unique ways that we all learn and grow. Welcome back to Beyond the Classroom, where we explore educational innovations, services, programs, and people that are adding value and making a difference in the lives of students from around the corner and around the globe. It is inspirational to meet top educational leaders that realize that going back to, quote, normal after the COVID global pandemic is simply unacceptable. The time is now to reinvent and reinvigorate education. We need to stop the mad rush that forces teachers to prepare young people to fill in the bubbles on the, quote, test and prepare them for the tests that they will face in life. Helping students to learn, to solve problems, to collaborate, work as a team, work with people from different from themselves, and preparing students for their unknown future and not our predictable past. COVID has given us a pause. The time is now to reflect on how unpredictable change can help us reimagine education going forward. We have some of the world's best universities in America and many exceptional institutions of higher learning learning right here in my state of Michigan, helping to prepare students for their future. We need new educational leaders to come forward and help our schools reinvigorate and reinvent learning. Our great universities are the incubators to that change that will lead to progress for all of our future. Now, with $130 billion of new COVID relief money flowing into our K-12 schools across the nation, there's great incentives to play it safe and to spend the money to help us, quote, get back to normal. Guess what? Normal was not working to prepare students for the hyper-competitive, disruptive global economy where China is breathing down our neck and jobs and ideas can and do move around the globe effortlessly. The talk about student remediation misses the mark. We need to be using technology and other modalities to accelerate personalized learning for our students as if our collective future depends on it, because ultimately it does. In a dynamic world, tomorrow rarely resembles today. Yet in far too many of our schools, we keep pretending as though it does. This needs to change, and our great institutions of higher learning are helping to lead the way. I'm Tom Watkins, your host of Beyond the Classroom. I come to this role after decades of working in juvenile justice, behavioral health, serving as Michigan State Superintendent of Schools and Director of the State Mental Health Department, as well as leadership roles in business and higher education, having spent many decades working to build cultural, economic, and educational ties to the fast-moving and evolving People's Republic of China, I can tell you that education matters, and China is not slowing down and waiting for us to catch up. We need all hands on deck to help accelerate learning for our students. Beyond the Classroom's purpose is to engage great teachers, education change agents, innovators, and entrepreneurs, and share their ideas and wisdom with a broader audience. Our universities and the men and women who lead them will help offer our youth the 21st century skills needed for students. They not only provide a framework for successful learning in the classroom, but ensure students can thrive in a world where change is constant and learning never stops. 
or institutions of higher education are vitally important for our nation's well-being. Today, we're privileged to have such a leader in Dr. James Smith, the 23rd president of Eastern Michigan University. He came to EMU in 2016 from South Dakota. President Smith has led an active presidency at Eastern, undertaking many positive strategic initiatives that all help accelerate teaching and learning and preparing EMU students for their future and not our past. Dr. Smith and I bonded over our engagement with the international education, especially with China. President Smith has initiated strategic efforts to increase Eastern's international footprint and recruitment base. He's traveled to China during his first year to strengthen and establish those relationships with the People's Republic of China. President Smith is also supporting faculty efforts to travel abroad for academic recruitment and alumni engagement activities. Perhaps not so much this past COVID year, but in, in previous times and certainly moving forward. Under Dr. Smith's leadership, the university is a proud supporter of the national hashtag You Are Welcome Here campaign, encouraging international stu students to study in the United States. Building these global educational bridges add value to the U.S. students and to students from other nations. It's a big world, and we need to be learning from each other. Dr. Smith knew early in his career he wanted to be a teacher, and he did so. He's an elementary and middle school teacher after earning his bachelor's of science degree in elementary education. He would go on to earn a master's in education administration from Xavier University in Cincinnati and a doctor in philosophy and educational leadership from Miami University. During his entire tenure to date at EMU, he has focused on supporting student success, building academic strengths, ensuring equity and inclusion, and increasing the university's overall international footprint. All an exceptional foundation and springboard for our conversation today. Welcome, Dr. Smith, to Beyond the Classroom, and thank you for your leadership. Tom, thanks so much for the kind introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, and I certainly uh, enjoyed your, your first words as we kicked off this podcast that uh, we can't do the same things we did in past years or we're going to get the same results. So I'm, I'm certainly honored to be with you and excited to discuss some of the things that are going on in the, uh, the big envelope that surrounds all that we know as K-12 and post-secondary education. Yeah, it's a really important work uh, that you're doing and uh, happening around the country. You you, you come at this uh, role as, uh, as a president of a university in a little bit different way. You have a different trajectory. Tell me how the, you got to where you're at and how your different experiences may help you in this important, vital leadership role. It is an odd trajectory. I uh, I say to our faculty colleagues, uh, don't, don't follow my pathway because it's pretty atypical. Yeah. I was a public school teacher and a public school administrator, uh, as you kindly said in the introduction, Tom, and, and I love the work. Uh, I went back to Miami of Ohio, was a full-time doctoral student, and fully anticipated to be uh, a multicultural, diverse uh, district superintendent and thought my life career would be there. And I fell in love with undergraduate teaching. And about three quarters of the way through my doctoral program, I asked my major advisor, I said, is there any chance I could get a job in higher ed? And he said, well, you're going to have to do some things differently. You're going to have to, 
to, to write a bit differently. You're going to have to work on some different things. So I did, and I was lucky to enter uh, the post-secondary world and have been there uh, since 1988, going from a faculty member at a great private liberal arts to um, a department chair in a very large system to being a dean and then being a vice president. And the vice presidential role that I held was not that of provost. I was a vice president for economic development at Bowling Green State University, which you know is just about an hour yeah. here in Ypsilanti. And uh, from there, I, I really wasn't sure what my next step would be. I enjoyed working with business and industry. We had had some good success in some of the work that I had done as a dean. And uh, lo and behold, um, a consulting firm called one day and said, would you be interested in interviewing for a presidency in South Dakota? And I had been there, but I had not been there since I was a child. And uh, I was fortunate to be the president of Northern State University for seven years and then came here to Eastern in 2016, as you said, and have been here ever since and have enjoyed every stop along the way. As you said, atypical, uh, but an incredibly diverse set of experiences that really bring uh, what I think is the full gamut of K-12 and post-secondary together all in, in uh, one career bundle, if you will. How does that different background than the typical academic uh, profile as, as a presidency, how do you think that it uh, helps you in your leadership responsibilities? The one thing I learned very early in, in my vice presidential years, Tom, was that I really wasn't the post-secondary higher ed curriculum guy that a provost needed to be. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's casting aspersions on myself or anyone that's held that job. We just have to know where our strengths are. Right. Uh, my strengths were always being out in the public, um, doing public um, engagements, uh, bringing students to the world of work. And um, I, I don't think I would have been successful as a provost. Hmm. So uh, having success as a vice president for economic development gave me great respect for provosts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have an exceptionally good one in Dr. Rhonda Longworth here at, at Eastern Michigan. Rhonda is a long tenured faculty member. And you need uh, that kind of partnership, don't you, right? Between absolutely. the external and absolutely. external and internal responsibilities, kind of the inside person and the outside person. That's a... Uh, Critical, critical. How do you think uh, universities have changed um, in the past couple of decades and, and their focus and, and really what they need to be to be uh, making the difference for our communities, our country, and, and the world for that matter? Well, this won't surprise you, Tom, because we're in the same kind of age category. But my first higher ed job, I shared a computer with seven other people. <laughs> we had one computer at the end of the hall and seven of us in our department shared a single Macintosh computer. Yeah. You know, look at today. I, I have multiple computers, both at home and at the office. Our phones that you and I conversed on uh, just not very long ago right. can do more than the Bomar brain that you and I had as yeah. undergraduate students to, uh, to do our course. Take up a whole floor, today. right? Right. So it's, that's a, a huge transformation. Uh, I think our students' comfort level as um, technology natives have certainly impacted what we do in higher ed. And I think you can't see it more than we've seen it in the last 13 months. Mm -hmm. or, um, I won't speak for you, but I certainly struggled at the beginning, getting comfortable with Zoom, being able to share my screen, 
being able to do the things that uh, I can now do uh, quickly, uh, our students had no hesitation. Right. They miss being in a classroom. They miss seeing their colleagues. They miss the person-to-person interaction. But the technology interface was never a stumble for them. Sure. In fact, that's how they, they kind of interact with each other, right? Exactly. It's, it's their daily life. Yes. Uh, that's one big one. Yeah. I think the other one that, that all of your listeners will know that no higher education is uh, when I was an undergraduate in the 70s, and this held true well into the late 80s, the states were funding public institutions at 70 or 75 percent. Mm-hmm. The student and her or his family were funding at about 25 percent. You look at that change today, it is absolutely flipped. The state has... Um, I'll use the word walked away from their responsibility. Yeah, I think they've really and run. I, I, they, I wish it was only walking away. It seems like they've, you know, bolted. You can say that because you're no longer <laughs> in the sphere of, uh, of, of being paid by the legislature. Yeah, exactly. You're right, Tom. They have, they've certainly turned their back, and, and I would agree with your uh, analysis. They've run. And we see that impacting uh, young men and women of color, uh, students that come from extremely poor backgrounds. I was a high school principal in a district that was one of the poorest in the state of Ohio. Mm -hmm. Those students, as they matured, would not have been able to pay 75% of a tuition anywhere. And I think sometimes we haven't looked carefully at that. Uh, We've said, well, Pell Grants cover that gap. Uh, They don't. They haven't grown. We're hearing a lot about growth now in the Biden administration. They haven't grown as as you and I know they should, and um, I I think that's a that's a, a negative mark on us as a nation. Yeah, one of the things though that I really appreciate about you appreciate about your leadership, and quite honestly, Eastern uh, in the past is that you really strive to make the university open and and, uh, and engaged and reaching out to people in our community. I've watched that throughout my career, and that's something that uh, that you and the people that have come before you uh, should take a lot, a lot of pride in it. You know, Eastern Michigan University is a, you know, quote, a school of opportunity. What does that mean to you and to, to your colleagues there? Well, first, I should tell the listeners that uh, you held the post of state, state superintendent for public instruction in Michigan. Not everyone may know that. But uh, a predecessor a few years before you is a man named John Porter. Yes. And John became president of Eastern Michigan. And, and John coined that phrase yeah. that we are an institution of opportunity. We're a college of opportunity. We're a university of opportunity. And what Dr. Porter was saying, I've gone back to look at, at some of his writings and uh, I've been tremendously impressed by John. I never met him and he's since passed. Uh, but his writings reflect the fact that he knew that greater Detroit could not be great if we were leaving behind 25, 35, 45% of the population. So he tried to build tuition structures that worked for students that uh, were of modest means. He tried to build and did build uh, some very innovative scholarship opportunities. And and we've tried to live in the shadow of Dr. Porter and and continue to do those things. We have a scholarship that that you've heard because it's very popular with, with international students called the Forward Scholarship. You come, you live four years on our campus. You live in our housing for four years. The last two years, we pay your tuition. That's because we knew we had students that could not, couldn't get through four years on their dime. But if we can figure out the housing and the dining aspect of their life, uh, we'll get them through those four years by covering those last two years of tuition. 
as you know from working with international students, that's a huge up. Absolutely. It's a huge opportunity for students who come from less than the upper class in, in those developing nations and some very developed nations. Uh, but it's also a good deal for students that, for example, aren't Pell eligible. Their parents make just a little too much to be Pell eligible. This is a scholarship opportunity that we think is reflective of Dr. Porter and really giving those students the opportunity to be at Eastern, to receive a bachelor's degree, to break through that. Um, it's a hackneyed phrase, but it's true. That glass ceiling to go on to do things for themselves and for their families that would not have happened a couple decades before. You know, and oftentimes the, the difference between uh, maybe getting your degree and not is some, some, sometimes as simple as gas money or, or you know, tuition uh, break. And so I didn't realize that that was tied to Dr. Porter, but he is somebody that uh, I have deep respect for, knew, um, watched his career as a, as a young person, and uh, not surprising uh, that that opportunity would really begin with, with him and, and that you've helped carry on that legacy. But also Carnegie has uh, designated EMU as an engaged university. Tell our listeners what it means to be an engaged university. Well, the Carnegie Group uh, classifies institutions by, um, you know, you're, you're highly research active, for example. Uh, you produce X number of doctoral students a year. And, and we're, we're ranked right where we ought to be. We're the kind of second level of that uh, doctoral preparation. But they had a classification. Yeah, you're not trying to be the Harvard of Ypsilanti, right? You know, no. that, that's and, not your role. And we... One thing that we have said, and, and uh, I'll do a little sidebar here, Tom, is that we have selective doctoral programs that we know we can prepare doctoral students expertly. Right. We do not need 50 doctoral programs because we have a pretty big institution that's about seven miles from where I sit uh, right now. Again, your, your viewers may not know the geography of Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, but the University of Michigan is literally seven miles from the university house where I'm taping this podcast with you. Uh, you can do a doctorate in virtually every area known to woman or man. Mm -hmm. uh, here, we have select doctoral programs that we're very proud of. And that leads us back to our engaged university status. We said when this came forward by the Carnegie Group that we do work in the community. We work in schools. We work in in places where people of need often go. We have our social work students work in uh, battered women's shelters, work in uh, public schools with kids who need uh, that social work expertise. And really a hands-on kind of a focus, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's where we grasp on. We actually have a unit of the university called Engage. We do everything from when masks were hard to find, engage, put together community groups to sew masks. Wow. We work with food gatherers. So you uh, see a problem and you find a solution. That's exactly what they do. And, and we have a woman that does that as a leader that is, uh, I think, one of the best in the nation at saying, if this is needed, we'll find a way to help fill that gap by engaging with the community. You know the old days of a moat around a university. And right. One comes in and no one goes out. Right. That's not what Eastern Michigan is. I would argue that's not what today's student needs either. Right. They need to be enmeshed in the community. Ypsilanti is a place that's very diverse. Uh, we have uh, homes of, of significant wealth 
and we have homes of significant poverty. And we like to be engaged with all segments of the community. And we're also in Wayne County, which is where Detroit is. And we're in Ann Arbor, which is a more affluent community. Mm -hmm. uh, but we really like to be deeply embedded in Ypsilanti, the, the town that that houses us and lifts us up, if you will. Yeah. Well, again, it uh, it's reflected, I think, in, in the reputation uh, of the university. You're all, Eastern Michigan University is also a top producer, if I recall, of uh, educators in your College of Education. One of the I've heard a statistic once that said it was like one out of ten. I don't know if it's general ed or special ed uh, students has one or more of their degrees from EMU. Talk a little bit about your College of Education and the kind of things you're trying to do there. Oh, that'd be my pleasure, and thank you for uh, kind of queuing that up for me, Tom. Um, at one time, uh, when I was a young man, Eastern Michigan University produced the largest number of teachers in America. Uh, we were truly the quintessential teacher's college. Mm -hmm. We've morphed from that. We're much more a regional comprehensive now. We still have lots and lots of people in our teacher ed program. Uh, you mentioned special ed. That's one of our faster growing programs on campus. Again, you know these statistics from Michigan. The, the need for special educators in the classroom right. is tremendously high. and Tremendous uh, shortages seeing, right now, yeah. Huge shortages. And we're seeing parents that know the K-12 world encouraging their daughter or their son to think about special education as a career. Uh, but in the state of Michigan, it is not unusual for me to go out to visit a superintendent, for example, and she or he would say to me, um, 40% of my classroom teachers have a bachelor's degree and another 40 have a master's degree from you. And uh, that tells you our reach. Uh, it tells you our, our lived history. And, and I think it tells you what we value, that, that we value helping young people be the success. Uh, what's the line our students like to see? I want to be the best me I can be. Yeah. And that's where I think our teacher ed people really resonate. We want to help young people be the best version of themselves that they want to be or that they may not even know that they want to be. We want to we want to give them that dream to be the person that they may not mm -hmm. quite have come to grasp with. Is, this is who I can be. Yeah. And I, I assume a lot of the students that uh, come to Eastern Michigan University are the first uh, person in their family uh, pursuing a they degree. Are. Yeah. So. Absolutely. We, we have a very large number of first generation students. Uh, 30% of our incoming uh, freshman class, or, or what we call FIDIACs, first time in any college, they would be uh, representing a little more than 30% minoritized students. Mm -hmm. So they're, uh, they're African-American youth, they're Hispanic youth, uh, they're youth that come from Arabic-speaking homes. Uh, it is a very diverse, eclectic group of, of students that make up who we are, and you're right, many of them are first time at their family or in their family right. at college. And I assume you put together a lot of support because not only do you have a good track record of recruiting those students, but helping them complete their degree as well. I, uh, I often say, again, because you know Detroit so well, Tom, every student that graduates from high school in the city of Detroit does not have the same experience you have at Cass Tech. Right. Cass Tech is one of the premier high schools, right. still one of the premier high schools uh, in our region. Yeah, not just uh, the urban school, but one of the best in our region. Period. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just period. Yeah. Yes. And and it's not speaking badly of the other schools in, in greater Detroit. It's just saying that that is a premier school. Right. They probably need no supplemental instruction. 
they probably need no math tutoring because they've had a very, very robust curriculum from freshman to senior. Right. Other high schoolers that come to us, and, and again, I'm going to move away from urban core and talk about highly rural schools where they don't have a calculus teacher. Yeah. So they come and they want to be an engineer and they say, how do I be an engineer? I don't even know calculus yet. We have, we have intro to calculus courses. We have calculus tutors. Uh, we have advanced algebra tutors. Uh, we have the opportunity for them to do small study groups. It's a fundamental aspect of what we do to help these students succeed. I understand that you're looking for a new dean of your College of Education today. Uh, maybe a little bit of an ad here. Uh, what, what are you looking for? What do you think you need uh, for an educational leader for your College of Education to keep you on that cutting edge of where we need to be? Well, I will say our, our departing dean, Michael Saylor, came to us uh, after a long period of time in North Texas and was a longstanding associate dean, has done a wonderful job. Mike's at the point in his life he wants to retire, and we need someone to carry Mike's vision forward. And one of the things that, that I'm really proud of that Mike brought to the forefront here at Eastern is a pathway for future educators. And that is a program, when you think of a visionary, these are urban and rural schools who have signed on with the College of Education saying, if a student comes from our high school, they finish your pathways program. We will give them first shots at interviewing in our district when they graduate. Mm. And the vast majority of these students add diversity to those districts. Right. You can see that Mike realized that having a highly diverse university is not useful if we can't get those students out into the world of work place that needs diversity. So I hope that we'll see someone that can bring that vision forward. Uh, you know, and you were very kind to say at the introduction, I'll always look for someone that has some global expertise. Right. Uh, I think we cannot, as a K-12 community, assume that not understanding what happens in Romania has impact on what happens in Ypsilanti. Right. What happens in Beijing, what happens in Shanghai, uh, what happens in Nanning, all mm -hmm. cities that you've been to. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've been to small communities in China like Zuni, where the the uh, Mao's March began. And you, you have to understand that we must globalize. And I think the next dean will have to have that element because it's so incumbent on what we need for next level educators. It's kind of that old bumper sticker. What is it? Act locally, think globally. Yeah, exactly. You need, exactly. uh, you need to do. You know, th this past year has been a very unique year the, with COVID coming in. It's really kind of uh, pushed remote learning uh, that was lingering in the shadows as we talked a little bit earlier in the background and kind of pushed it forward and put it in uh, kind of a spotlight. And, and a lot of our schools weren't really ready. Uh, a lot of our students weren't ready. Uh, some of our educators weren't ready to go remote. Uh, what is Eastern doing to make sure that uh, the kids that are graduating, uh, whether they're in education or social work or the like, are really uh, using technology to advance uh, our communities. We just this morning, uh, before I got onto this podcast, Tom, we're talking, um, the chief information officer and I, about how many classrooms can we convert that would allow us to have Jim Smith teaching social foundations of education in that classroom, 
but having students all over the United States and frankly, all over the world join as a remote learner. That's not something we were talking about 10 or 12 years ago. We're talking about high-tech cameras, the ability to see not only you and me as a, as a frontal entity, but to see the entire 360 of the classroom and to feel embedded in that uh, with a technological flair that it's expensive, but I think it's essential that we look at what tomorrow's learner is going to ask of us. And then incumbent in all that is that we train them to be able to do this when they go out to the world of work, not only in the K-12 world, but think about management consultants in the business world. I don't think you and I are going to be sitting next to the guy or gal from IBM or Xerox like we used to on every flight we were on because they were traveling to see face-to-face clients. Now they're going to open up their laptop or they're going to open up their iPad or they're going to work from their phone and say, hey, I can troubleshoot that problem from here. And we have to have our students, many of them have high comfort levels with that kind of environment, but we have to show them all that's embedded in that. How do you maximize your contact with people using remote technology? And then I think the best of, of all of our thinking is, how do we blend the community of scholars that, that we love and respect in higher education with that virtual presence? And that gets you into things like virtual reality that, that I don't understand, but I know our nursing students can put on headsets and actually be in a hospital operating room. Right. And it blows me away the things that are so first person. With, with that virtual reality. So that's another one that I think if we aren't there yet in higher education, we need to be very rapidly. And, and understanding, too, if, if, if you've kind of got a boring sage-on-the-stage lecture type of uh, classroom where people are using old data and the like, um, that's not particularly engaging face-to-face. And if you just transfer that old stuff onto the computer, it's uh, the same stuff in a in a different format. So it's, it really is learning how to make technology kind of pop to help the kids learn. You know, you talked a little bit about uh, China and our both of our interests. We've kind of connected and bonded around that. Um, why is uh, international education of value? And, and how do you convince somebody that, you know, maybe going into, uh, you know, social work where they're going to be working with kids in Ipsy or in Saginaw or Detroit or in Novi or Birmingham, um, that, you know, knowing about the broader world is important to them. Well, I think in, uh, I'll draw back to teacher education, but it's certainly broader than that. If you look at the number of Bengali students, for example, in Hamtramck, you think of the average listener that does not know today's Detroit, thinks of Hamtramck as a really cool little Polish enclave. Right. Great food, right? And that's what you and I knew it yeah, to be yeah. years ago. It is now a multicultural center. Right. And How do we prepare teachers to go out into that world, knowing that some of the students we're going to have to translate for them because mom and dad don't speak English? Mm -hmm. And what happens in uh, whether it be India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, has a direct impact on the lives of those students in their classroom. You've watched and I've watched uh, the horrors of India and and COVID-19 as it's just rampage. uh, It's just engulfing the country. Well, think of all the students that we have of Indian origin that still have grandma and grandpa there. Right. 
have an uncle there, an aunt there, or a cousin there, or friends of the family there. We have to understand that the world is a really, really complex place, but it comes on our doorstep. Those complexities come to us. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, you and I both have an interest in China. I think uh, my next trip will be number seven in, uh, in recent years. Uh, I did go my very first year here, and I've gone since uh, to China as, uh, as an ambassador uh, of sorts from East Michigan. But uh, I went, and when I was in South Dakota, I developed the Confucius Institute with the, the great help of my wife, who is a, a global education specialist. We knew that if our students wanted to learn Mandarin, for example, in South Dakota, the only way that could happen was to build a relationship with the Chinese government. And they sponsored, as you know, Confucius Institutes that have gotten a lot of, of bad press, but saw a lot of great work in the time I was in South Dakota at Northern State with that work. And I saw young people that learned Mandarin quite quickly. I'm up to about 14 words, Tom. I'm horrible. Uh, they also, Gong Bay, I might know. Gombei would be the, the, the one that I have, and I'm not sure I pronounce it right, but it's Kim Budong. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that we're preparing students for that globally complex world. Yeah. And if we don't bring, as we've done at Eastern, we had prior to the pandemic, we had 88 different countries represented on our campus. Every student's not going to study abroad. Every student not going to take advantage of a Confucius Institute. Everyone's not going to take Korean language as an option for their language offering, but they can make a friend with someone from Afghanistan mm -hmm. or from Ghana or from Tanzania or from China or South Korea or uh, Japan. And I think that will shape the view of their business, engineering, health sciences career. Whatever they uh, choose to do and, and make for a better world, I think. You know, and one of the things that I've said, Doc, is that uh, I believe sitting in a university in the United States today is a future leader of China. And the experiences that uh, that individual has um, is going to profoundly impact all of us, our children our, and our grandchildren. And, and that's uh, so true, I think, uh just learning. All of a sudden, you're exposed to somebody that you may not have known in in your small community. Um, to be able to is, is a sign that I saw in China and I've kept take a broader view of the world, uh, and it helps really open up those activities. What do you see as some of the value of the people to people exchange that happens uh, on your campus when a young kid from Detroit may be able to meet not an African American but an African? From, right. from Africa or meet somebody from Bangladesh or meet somebody from the People's Republic of China. Uh, what kind of learning does that, that mean to those kids? Many years ago, I, uh, I had a Fulbright scholar that came to us from Belarus. I was working in the Indiana University system at the time, and uh, he was a wonderful addition and, and really brought a lot to the classroom for our students that they probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. But but he had a great line that I think really uh, symbolizes what you're talking about. He said the first time that he went to a grocery store in the state of Indiana, he cried. He'd never seen that many products on a grocery store shelf. And our students would say, well, you know, everybody sees that. Mm -hmm. a student in Tanzania, Namibia, 
you know, Ghana would say, no, the guy from Belarus is right. You know, our, our grocery stores, now a grocery store is not emblematic of everything that represents the country, but it does talk about scarcity right. and understanding scarcity as a part of life in developing countries is, I think, not only noble, but, but incredibly important that we not look like the ugly American when we talk about X, Y, or Z. Well, what, what do you mean you, you don't have enough of X? They don't have enough of X. Right. And our students can tell other students that. You know, I, I had a student tell me that they needed to get, uh, they wanted the Johnson & Johnson vaccine before they went back home because it was only one uh, administration. And during that week or so that we couldn't do Johnson & Johnson, the student was very upset. He said, I'm going back to a developing nation in Africa. If I don't get vaccinated before I leave, my chances could be two or three years out. Right. Our average student who lives in Gross Point, Michigan, would not think about that if they didn't talk to that student. Right. Say, what do you mean? You can just walk up right now to uh, to walk-in clinics. Right. There aren't walk-in clinics in, in many of those uh, nations. And, and you and I know that from having traveled around the world. Yeah, a friend of mine says it's a big world. And in a big world, there's many different types of birds. And uh, we're, we see that every day on what things that we take for granted. Uh, my first trip to, to uh, China in 1989, I literally came back. I mean, I grew up in D.C. during the Vietnam era, um, so I had a different uh, perspective. But kiss the ground. As many problems and challenges we have here in this country, um, we also have a lot of opportunity. And that's one of the things I think are, is very meaningful for the work that you're doing is to expand those opportunities for young people here in the United States to be exposed um, to people around around the world. When you take a look at your tenure, and I hope it goes on for a long, long time, Doc, um, what are you most proud of to date that, that you've been able to accomplish at, uh, at Eastern? I think there's several um, that, that come to mind, Tom. We've, we've worked very hard to not only stand up, but laud our work in the diversity space. Right. We want to be more diverse. We want to have students come to us uh, who are that first generation student and have them feel welcome. You mentioned that you are welcome here. Uh, we're, we're spinning a little bit of that off with all our welcome here. We want people to understand that that small town upper peninsula. And again, some of your listeners won't know the difference between the upper peninsula and the lower peninsula of Michigan, but but I say often the UP reminds me of South Dakota. Yeah. The lower peninsula of Michigan reminds me of where I grew up in Ohio. They're almost like two states. We want the upper peninsula kid to feel as comfortable as the young woman who comes to us from Dearborn. And again, you know this, but some of your listeners might not. Uh, I walk down the streets of Dearborn and I don't read Arabic. So I sometimes have to ask people, am I in the right spot? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want all of those people to feel welcome. So that's one that I, I, I treasure. Uh, I also would welcome people literally from all over the country. And, and I hope we have podcast listeners all over the world that if you're ever in greater Detroit, come look at our campus. We've invested tremendously in infrastructure. Right. We have a brand new engineering building. We took the old building down to its metal studs, invested $40 million of university money to put together a new engineering and technology building that now houses our first named college. 
the Game Above College of Engineering. Game Above is a, an alumni group, a giving circle that has given very, very kindly to the university in, in my tenure. And we want to have people see the quality of what we're doing inside the classroom, in buildings, and then in belongingness, in acceptance. Mm -hmm. And then we want to do more. And, and I know the challenges are there. When you say you hope that I'm here a long time, uh, yeah, you see my hairline, Tom. They can't see me on, on the podcast, but uh, uh, I'm getting long in the tooth. Uh, before I call this an end, I hope that we have closed the socioeconomic gap for graduation. I hope we've closed the color gap for graduation, the ethnicity gap. Our students of majority, uh, what I would call Anglo or Caucasian students, still graduate at a higher rate right. than African-American, Latinx, and other students. And we need more to do more work there. I'm proud of what we've done. We're narrowing the gap. But uh, you know that we have a uh, high school college collaboration uh, that goes on in our campus. And that, that group that serves out of the Washtenaw uh, County Intermediate School District, that group has narrowed that gap and really can show that their students go on to college and graduate at almost the same rates. We need to be able to say that as a university. And it's building those partnerships, isn't it, Doctor? And it that is. really makes a difference. You know, none of us can do it uh, alone. Um, but when we can form a partnership between business and, and higher ed or higher education and K-12 and our intermediate districts, we really can add value and make a difference. You know, one of the things that I, that is a challenge in doing these podcasts, there's so much to cover, uh, with people like yourself and so little time. Is there anything that I haven't asked you today as we kind of move towards wrapping up um, that you would like to, to leave with the listeners? I thought you might ask, Tom, and, and I don't know that I have a tremendous answer for this, so it's probably silly of me to, to uh, <laughs> raise it. Huh? But what what keeps you awake at night, Jim? What what uh, uh, what makes you get up at 2.30 in the morning and go get that extra drink of water and maybe sit for a few minutes? And uh, I think the answer to that is long-term funding. Yeah. I truly have the most cognitive dissonance around how are we going to continue to be able to do what we do with the dollars that we have. Uh, you know, around the country, there's a whole discussion of, well, funding should be all on per pupil. You know, the headcount, uh, I heard a state legislator say, who's opposed to that model, by the way, that kids don't come with bags of gold on top of their head. No. You know, we should stop looking at it as a per pupil funding issue. But the work that we do in, in a legacy campus, 1849 was the, the founding of, of Eastern Michigan University, second oldest higher education institution in the state. We have legacy needs. We, we have old buildings. We have old infrastructure. But we also have emerging needs. If we want to bring young people from that Bengali community that I mentioned earlier, they're going to need some support networks that other places may not need. And whether it's Bengali or... Uh, Dearborn is a first-time student or a Detroit student or even a Northville kid. I mean, everybody thinks that Northville, Birmingham, and the like are wealthy communities, but there's pockets of need in, in every community, right? You know, so what do you do to help those kids? I, I, I use the UP often, and that's not fair. I think you can go uh, anywhere north of Lansing and find very rural school districts that don't have a lot. Right. And when those students come to us to say, well, every pupil should come with the same amount of dollars. I would argue that they come to us with greater need 
going to fill that need, but we're going to fill it on a basis of cost. I, I can't, someone said to me once, you can't get French cooking on $10 a day. I don't know how to do that. Now we've done it in the donor space and you've seen that. In, in you've done un unbelievable things to stretch your public and private dollars to impact children and students and creating those opportunities. That's clear. So that's that's my uh, that's my stay awake at night concern, and I, I think if we can come to an understanding that you and I have because we know each other and we talk about these issues, that if we can come to an understanding that all children don't wear a size five shoe, that we have to do things differently in different places, uh, then I think we can get to a more reasonable solution about how we fund higher education, how we fund K twelve how we do the right things for all students, whether they be in Michigan, Alabama, Mississippi, inner city LA or inner city Detroit. It's, right. it's, it's a tough road to hoe, but we have to ask ourselves those questions. And the investment that we make in education is not just an investment in that individual and, and their family. It's really an investment uh, in our cities, our state, our nation, and the world. I mean, the, uh, the investment uh, pays dividends long after their education goes on. If people want to learn more about uh, what you're doing at Eastern Michigan University, how would they find out uh, more? Is there a website they could go to that you could share with our listeners? Absolutely. I would encourage anyone to go to www.emich.edu. And for example, you can, you can uh, use our search engine to find things uh, like the Pathway for Future Educators that I talked about before. There's a splash page in the College of Education that talks about that program. As you said, Tom, there's so much to talk about and we don't have the time, but uh, we do great work with a federal TEACH program. You can find information about that. You can find information about our FORWARD program that allows students to come to us and do that two years on their dime and two years on our dime for, for tuition. And I, I would really encourage people to dig in a little bit. Not that you're all going to want to come and visit Eastern Michigan. I would love for everybody to want to do that, but to look at some of the things that we're doing that you might take away, um, whether it be my friends at HBCUs around the country or my friends that are working at small privates or superintendents in the K-12 area. How how would all of that be impacted by some of the things we're doing? And, and you can do that by looking at our various web pages. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Uh, Dr. James Smith, you're a leader, a uh, leader at Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, uh, across the state, and in fact, globally. So thank you, thank you for the work you're doing, the faculty, the great students at EMU continuing to do great things there on campus, and Beyond the Classroom. This is Tom Watkins from Beyond the Classroom. Thanks for tuning in today and listening. Uh, we've learned a lot from Dr. James Smith at Eastern Michigan University. Thank you, Doc. Thank you, Tom.